Simple Beep, Episode 11, Triumph of the Nerds, Part 3. Hello, and welcome back to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we're here for our third and final installment of our commentary on the documentary Triumph of the Nerds. Uh, to briefly recap the first two parts, as this episode did at the top, uh, the first episode was about the rise of the personal computer and ended with the Apple II being the dominant home machine. And then in part two, it talked about IBM's retaliation to maintain its big blue presence. Uh, so they released the IBM PC, which uh, quickly rose to prominence as well. Um, and then at the end of part two and at the end of this recap, uh, it's pointed out that the IBM PC may have been too hard to use. And this is an opportunity for Apple to come in with its Macintosh and uh, the graphical user interface and really making the home computer uh, suitable for use in the home. And appropriate for the time that this episode and this documentary series was released, the whole basis of this episode is the, at that point, still growing Mac versus Windows, Mac versus PC wars, because this was released in 95. So they barely get to cover basically brand new stuff at that point, the Windows 95 launch. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The The episode actually opens up at, uh, I guess, a, a giant launch event outside of Seattle for Windows 95. Uh, there's footage of people out on lawns, like they're at a, a big outdoor concert, and uh, Bill Gates's uh, face is projected onto some outdoor screens. Jay Leno is apparently a keynote speaker delivering some trademark Leno jabs. He's like the MC of the event. Yeah. And I made a quick note that uh, there's background music added in by the production company, not actually at the event, um, to kind of give some kind of foreboding uh, feel. And it sounded to me a lot like the Halo theme, which uh, they couldn't have known at the time, but is actually uh, pretty apt given the Microsoft versus Apple uh, storyline, uh, as many longtime Mac gaming fans will know Halo was originally a Mac exclusive and then Bungie got acquired, I think, by Microsoft and it became the Xbox's first killer app. Yeah, flagship title for the original Xbox. And I would have been so much better at Halo if it had been on the Mac because I was great at WASD and mouse for, uh, for, well, maybe not great, but significantly better with keyboard and mouse for first-person shooters. And I discovered with Halo in college that I was really bad at Halo. And then I discovered later on that it turns out my brain is just not wired. I'm really bad at any game that requires the use of two thumbsticks at the same time. I'm the same way. I'm the exact same way. Uh, so like we said, they're, they're at this launch event and uh, it's, it's some fun footage. And then cringely is uh, digitally inserted onto the, um, the outdoor TV screens to, uh, negate some of the things Bill is saying about Windows 95's uh, brilliant user interface and the innovation there. Because as we all know, uh, Windows came after the Mac, the first uh, Mac graphical user interface. And then what a lot of people know, but maybe not everybody, is that it goes back even further. The first uh, graphical user interface was actually developed by Xerox. And so that's where we go to next. The Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, or PARC. Well, once again, to sort of clean up the chronology here, tease it apart from the storytelling that 
the documentary is trying to do. So some versions of Windows predated the Mac, but of course also over in Apple land, the Lisa predated the Mac. So lots of this stuff was happening in the very early 80s, like 1981, 82. On the other hand, of course, almost no one has used Windows 1 or Windows 2. Windows really came into its own with version 3 and especially version 3.1. So that is at the point where it really is the direct competition between the Mac system software and Microsoft Windows. Anyway, back to Xerox Park. <laughs> um, so I personally had known about this story that Steve Jobs visited Park and uh, was inspired by what he saw there. But I never stopped to think, like, why was Xerox uh, doing all this research and innovating graphical user interfaces for desktop computers? And they say here that uh, it was it was a research center devoted to the future of the office because their business was in paper and they could see with the computer that people might move to a paperless office. It threatened their their very business. And that really struck me like that's really smart forward thinking that if your business is people making physical copies of things and they're going to stop printing or making copies, you, you want to go to what tools they're going to use. It's really interesting in what the people who worked at Xerox, especially in Xerox Park at that time, say in their interviews here is that they were really forward thinking, but then they kind of forgot about why they were forward thinking. Like it, there were clearly, you know, Xerox was a big company and there were clearly people who were not talking to each other because Xerox Park wouldn't exist if they didn't have this notion of moving forward into the digital age. But then when they finally got their GUI and all of their applications together and said, this is the product that we need to sell. They turned to the executives and the executives are like, why did you make this? Because you told us to, because this is the future of the company. Oh, whatever. Copy machines are fine. Uh, there's a there's a brief quote in here that uh, if if you could rank the top 100 computer researchers in the world, over half of them would have been at Park. Uh, and, you know, however true that may be, I think when you look at the list of, of stuff that they came up with, uh, it's, it's very well possible. Uh, Cringely takes us into their basement archives and shows the specific model that uh, is told to have inspired Steve Jobs, the Xerox Alto. Uh, and this is a, a desktop computer with a, a separate monitor, keyboard, and mouse. Um, <laughs> mouse, mouse, that's probably the first innovation right there. A point-and-click device instead of uh, entering commands entirely through the keyboard. The monitor I also noticed was portrait. Um, we're all used to widescreen displays now on our laptops and PCs. Um, and so I wondered, like, is that because they're they're still in that paper frame of mind? Like everyone's printing out uh, eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper that are oriented uh, in the portrait way. Uh, so maybe their, their computers in the future would. They showed a little promo video from them that did indicate that that was the, the goal was to have you would be able to create a document or you know do whatever you were doing on your computer and then say print this and you would get an exact copy of the screen so basically you know remember in the mid 90s uh print preview was a big deal because you could actually see what you were doing uh remember Jason Snell recently dug up uh, a video of him de demoing print preview on tech tv <laughs> that uh was like it was like High technology, another phrase that gets kicked around in uh, 
in Triumph of the Nerds. And this was just like completely eliminating that step before it was even necessary. It's like you do work on the screen. It's in the format of paper, but you can do more things with it. It's interactive. But then when you're done, you create your paper. Really a clever solution, I thought, to the problems that they were trying to solve. And then tying all of these features and innovations together is a GUI, a graphical user interface. You can point and click. There's the idea of windows layered on top of each other. Again, using the paper metaphor, they had a a demo video where they say they go over top of each other and it looks just like if you were shuffling papers on your desk. And so uh, Cringely moves the narrative forward. At some point, Steve Jobs visited Xerox Park and was uh, inspired by what he saw. Before we get into the tale of that visit, uh, Cringely uh, describes Steve Jobs. But he goes for the full full hyperbolic intro. Although, you know, I mean, Steve Jobs is uh, kind of a larger-than-life character, but let's see if it's quite this big. With this guy, we're not talking about someone driven by the profit motive and a desire for an opulent retirement at the age of 40. No, we're talking holy war. We're talking rivers of blood and fields of dead martyrs to the cause of greater computing. It's It goes back to that, you know, when he says holy war, you know, it goes back to that whole notion of it being a religious experience, religious battle, um between the two sides. We get some quotes from other people about Steve. Like, uh, for example, here's Larry Tesler, who worked both at Park and for Apple. When I wasn't sure what the word charisma meant, I met Steve Jobs and then I knew. That more accurately reflects a lot of the way people uh, remember and describe Steve. Like, there's the famous uh, phrase, the reality distortion field. Yes, I was just going to say that. <laughs> he had Larry Tesler didn't know that that phrase was... Uh, the word that he was looking for, maybe more than charisma. Now that we've been reintroduced to Steve, uh, a lot of that uh, interview that we referenced in uh, our discussion about the first part uh, gets pulled into this segment of the episode. Well, maybe the way that they set the tone here is that in the earlier episodes where Jobs appears, it's a lot more factual storytelling. And all of the quotes that get pulled in this episode seem to be more the hard-hitting, menacing Steve Jobs, uh, you know, take him by the throat. Uh, because here's one of the first things that he says. I don't really care about being right, you know. I just care about success. Right and wrong are not the keys here. Success is the key. And I think the way that that funnels back is, if you're successful, then you were right. It's like self-justifying. Another interesting quote that is brought up here is, Uh, Jobs is telling the story of what he learned from Xerox. And he says, they showed him three things and he ignored two of them because they were just piddling in comparison to the others. And he says they were object-oriented programming, networked computing, and the GUI. And he said the GUI was the king. Like, the other stuff was just complete, didn't matter. Except (laughs) with the benefit of hindsight, we look back and we say, what does Apple do these days? Object-oriented programming, Objective-C is the language that came through Next, you know, was was developed starting at Next, which was Jobs' Next company, chronologically, that is, not by name. (laughs) Um, So they have Objective-C, object-oriented programming, networked computing, 
you know, obviously there's a lot of debate going on today about just how good Apple's network services are. But the fact of the matter is that a large number of them are huge and extremely reliable, even if there are still some, you know, cracks and bugs here and there in their iCloud frameworks and the GUI, which has been their staple the whole time. Yeah. And I would even say that the idea of networked computing uh, can go even broader. Like when you think back to the iPhone's introduction, it was three things. It was a widescreen iPod, it was a mobile phone, and it was an internet communicator. Uh, like, And I arguably the internet communicator has become its strongest selling point with all these apps that can you know, enable you to talk to anybody anywhere in any form. Uh, the watch coming out, like its big sell is that communications button. Uh, and it's all because these devices now are networked instead of being uh, confined to just what's on the disks around your desk. Jobs also points out that, you know, Apple was able to take the idea of the GUI and run with it and that it was actually a real loss that Xerox wasn't able to work with their own technology in-house. And, you know, the people who worked at Xerox expressed the same sentiment that they felt like they were really onto something and they couldn't understand why it never came to fruition, except perhaps in the form of the Mac at a completely different company. Yeah, Steve uh, refers to the people at Xerox as copier heads. Uh, because they, it was still in that frame of of copying and paper uh, and not like the broader reach of what a computer could do. As Steve puts it, uh, we'll play this quote. And so they, they just grabbed, uh, grabbed defeat from the greatest victory in the computer industry. There was also the notion that Apple had to keep moving to stay alive or at least to stay as successful as it had been. Jobs says that the Apple II was running out of gas in the early 80s, and they really needed a new product that was going to even further their goal of making things exceptionally easy to use and making the personal computer actually personal. And like Ed said, before the Macintosh, there was a a separate Apple computer uh, dedicated to the idea of a graphical user interface. It was called the Lisa. Yeah, and it's mentioned here that, quote, the Lisa didn't work properly. I think that was one of Cringely's narration lines. And I was I was a little surprised by that. I, I mean, it's no doubt that the Lisa was not a commercial success. And they allude to the fact that it was extremely expensive um, for the time. You know, even we were looking up sort of Apple II pricing as we've been doing these previous episodes. And they were expensive, too. You know, you're talking maybe like, Two to three, maybe even four thousand dollar range in nineteen eighty dollars, which is a lot of money. But the Lisa was pushing up, I think, six, seven, eight thousand dollars at that time, which was really not tenable as a consumer product. And the goal of the team that was developing the Macintosh was, I think, they said a six hundred dollar computer. Yeah, right. Which is, I mean, that was really ambitious for the time. That's like, you know, when the iPad came out and people were saying, well, how much is this going to sell for? And there's, well, it's going to be at least $1,000. And then they were able to bring it in much lower. You know, that's, it seems like that's sort of been an ambition of Apple for a long time that 
if we really want to take this technology that is beyond what consumers have and give it to them, we need to get it in at a good price point. So the Macintosh team was sort of slated as the future. The Lisa was faltering, although it had it was it was the dry run because it was the first product that they had made that really incorporated all of the GUI aspects and the mouse. But Jobs saw that there was a lot of work to do and the Macintosh team was it. And they were on, quote, We were on a mission from God, you know, to save Apple. So that's a pretty big goal. And it's interesting that at that time, he thought that Apple was in serious trouble. I mean, they were talking probably still close to 50% market share, decreasing market share, but they were still doing well at the time. And with Steve now focused on this this mission within Apple, uh, he decided someone else should be brought in to run the company, be the chief executive officer. And so he recruited John Scully. And uh, this is where we come to the quote that inspired us to take on this three-part miniseries. He said... Do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? The thing that I didn't realize about this quote is that it's Scully who's the one who says the quote on camera, which I think makes it even a little bit more powerful. Because if it was Jobs who was telling the story, you would go, okay, great, Steve. Maybe there's a little bit of embellishment going on here. But Scully is so just quiet and calm and deadpan and is not passionate about this Apple history stuff in the way that the other people who are being interviewed were, which, of course, led to problems later on, I think. Um, The fact that he was just a pure businessman and not passionate about the product, not passionate about the ideas, doesn't invoke poetry and art the way that Jobs does when he talks about this. But the fact that he's the one who tells this story, you just... You just absolutely believe that those were the words directly out of Steve Jobs' mouth. One other thing that I noticed in the interview with Scully here is, um, as many of the people that are interviewed in the documentary uh, have, there's a computer in the background, which, sure, you know, it's thematic. Um, But he's got a computer on his desk, and I can't quite figure out what it is. It's a gray laptop, and it has a trackball. And that's as far as, as I went. Yeah, I, I, I looked at it and it didn't even quite look like it was connected. I'm like, but in 1995, nobody had a flat screen monitor, not even the former CEO of Apple. No one had a flat screen monitor unless it was attached to a portable or a notebook computer. So yeah, maybe it's an early power book. I couldn't quite identify it. So if anyone knows what exactly that computer is, uh, let us know. One other thing that cropped up in uh, montage uh, as they were introing Steve Jobs was they had lots and lots of photos of him in this era of the company. And there's one of him in an office at Apple. And there's a poster in the background, which I don't think I had ever seen before. And it's the word THINK in all capitals. And it's rainbow with the six color Apple rainbow colors. And I thought that was interesting, especially in light of the later Think Different campaign that uh, was the main advertising campaign just following the iMac and just following Jobs' return to the company. So 
there's sort of an interesting thread of history there. So they were just thinking at the beginning, <laughs> and apparently this poster is extremely rare. Uh, and then once Jobs was back, they continued to think, but different. So now in the episode, we come to uh, the release of the Macintosh. And before it was released, I didn't realize the scale of uh, hype and uh, and publicity uh, that Apple was uh, drumming up to like really get people excited for this forthcoming machine. I, I'm not sure again on the order of events here, but my sort of understanding, and again, not having lived through it, was that it was just completely quiet. And I guess, you know, people knew about the Lisa, but the fact that it was going to be sort of revamped into the Macintosh and then the Macintosh line was not widely known, and then that it just sort of dropped with the Super Bowl ad, the 1984 ad. But I don't know if that's how this actually went or not, because in this video that's shown in the documentary, Steve is on stage at this event, which is called the Macintosh Software Dating Game, and he makes a 1984 reference. So my guess is this is probably sometime later in 1984. Okay, that makes more sense. The Macintosh is out, and they have the problem that they, a problem that crops up again and again, that they're trying to get traction with developers. They need the best software. They need good software, but they really need the best software to be on the Mac. So they bring in some people, including none other than Bill Gates, as a panelist at this sort of jokey Apple event. And he makes a commitment that uh, Microsoft will make software for the Macintosh. And uh, again, this is uh, eerily uh, foreshadowing when Steve Jobs comes back to Apple, probably like a year or two after this documentary was released. And again, Bill Gates appears on stage, though this time uh, over like a video conference, and makes a commitment on behalf of Microsoft that they'll keep developing software and uh, specifically Office for the Mac. And it was one of the ways that would help turn Apple around. I get the impression, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I get the impression that the personal relationship for decades between Jobs and Gates was one of high respect at a distance. Yeah, You know, like later on, Jobs is going to have some quotes slagging Microsoft, but I don't think he's slagging Gates personally. Um, so they've always had an interesting relationship, and the two companies have always had an interesting relationship. It, of course, got uh, most tenuous and heated during their uh, lawsuits with each other over the Mac versus Windows user experience. But Microsoft has always been a part of the Mac experience. They have always developed software and they continue to today. So whether this uh, these events are in order or not, we then get to see the actual event, the, the introduction of the Macintosh. Again, with some things that I hadn't seen before, I think everybody has seen the classic shot of the original Mac with the script hello on the screen. But it seems like if this if the clips that are selected here go in sort of order of the show, or you can sort of tell which part is the first unveil, it's not the one that says hello. It 
also in script lettering on the screen, it says insanely great. And it's interesting that they led with that. And then it says, hello. And uh, they show footage that's clearly uh, a professionally shot and edited promo video, not footage from the, the release at on stage at the event. And it looks like the original Macintosh is in the same stark white room that a lot of Apple's products are detailed in today. Yeah, they had been preparing that office for Johnny for a long time. <laughs> then we get down to Jobs talking about the Macintosh and its success in retrospect, you know, with 10 years of hindsight when this interview was recorded. And he also brings up the quote that becomes the title of this episode. I mean, Picasso had a saying, he said, good artists copy, great artists steal. And I think recently this quote has been more attributed to Jobs. And I thought, oh, well, he said that it was Picasso. But wait, would Picasso really say that? Did Picasso even talk in English that much? I mean, I think he knew some English. I, I don't know. So, so where did this quote really come from? So we did a little digging. And we have a link to this from a website called Quote Investigator. So they've found that similar sentiments have been attributed in quotes to T.S. Eliot, Igor Stravinsky, Faulkner. But they say that they have not yet located substantive evidence for the attribution to Picasso. So I'm going to go ahead and say it. This is a Steve Jobs quote. Um, you know, with the sentiment that it has and the wording that it has, he's probably the first to put it out there just like this. And it's probably a good point of reference for anyone who wants to go to this quote in the future. And then uh, we come back to, as Ed pointed out, the, uh, the problem of having good software and, as Cringely puts it in his third law of computing, a killer app. The Mac is out, uh, but it's not selling as well as obviously Steve would have wanted it to, and probably as well as Apple's board would have wanted it to, because it doesn't have a killer app. Uh, the Apple II had a VisiCalc, the IBM PC had Lotus 123, um, but there's no such thing for the Mac, <laughs> despite the software dating game. Scully says, we had Mac Paint and Mac Write, and that was it. <laughs> yeah. Um, which... I'm not sure if they were bundled or sold separately, but they were you know, first-party Apple products. And revolutionary for the time, but again, a little bit limiting if all you can do is type and do pixel art. Uh, so then we hear the story of Adobe, uh, probably now most famous for Photoshop and the Creative Suite. Uh, but this was something new to me. Adobe was spun out of Xerox. Uh, they had some some innovations with uh, or with laser printing and uh, tied into that what you see is what you get WYSIWYG printing idea. Um, and another thing I, I didn't know is that when Adobe was spun out of Xerox and became uh, an independent company, Apple invested and controlled almost 20% of that company. Yeah, so this came out of the early deal with Adobe, their technology that Apple was interested in was PostScript, which is the specification for, uh, at that time, laser printing. So it was the first, it was the first uh, language, I guess, that enabled laser printing. And Apple had their software, their first-party software, MacWrite and MacPaint, that let you create beautiful things on your screen, but there was no good way to get it on paper. The 
pro- the problem that Xerox was trying to solve from the beginning. Uh, you know, of course, they were they were probably looking towards something like laser printing because that is the similar technology. You know, a laser printer functions in roughly the same way as a copy machine does with a with a drum and toner, rather than the other standard for printing at the time, which was dot matrix printing, which is just not going to be beautiful when you have uh, at that time extremely high quality graphics, uh, or if you have advanced typography. So that was the genesis of that relationship between Adobe and Apple and led to the image writer, Apple's first printer. And with this relationship and these technologies in place, the the killer app or more likely apps for the Mac uh, became this idea of desktop publishing, creating beautiful imagery and typography with software on your Mac and, uh, printing it if needed to. And, uh, and they interview um, a man uh, who's uh, some kind of digital illustrator and they show him, you know, drawing with his tablet on a, his, you know, 1995 vintage Mac. Uh, and I remember this time that like the Macs in the mid nineties were for the creative people, depending on what side of that you were on, you could look at that as a good thing or a bad thing. Like the Macs was where, was where creative work got done. It was great. It was for the people with, you know, creativity, brilliant minds. Or you could say like the Mac is for fun. The Mac is a toy. It doesn't do serious business as well as the Windows side of things. Well, with the desktop publishing stuff, they were strong, but in a niche market. And in terms of being a successful large company, just being strong in a niche market is not enough, especially when 10 years prior, 15 years prior with the Apple II, they were strong in a general market. And that's what led to the woes in the early 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, that led to Scully going to the Apple board and saying, I have ideas for the future. Steve wants to hold the course. And what should we do? And of course, as we know, the board opted to go with Scully, their business guy and This eventually led to the ouster of Steve Jobs from Apple. And I think as nobody has really told the definitive story here, Uh, various biographies and histories have have tried it, have painted it as more or less contentious, apparently. Wasn't it the Ashton Kutcher movie where like Steve Jobs is like throwing things? Yeah. yeah. Um, I have not watched that movie. Me neither. uh, I don't plan to. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the the story has been painted more or less contentious. And I think in the version that's told here, some people who were at Apple at that time said, well, and Steve was stripped of his power, so he left, just like he got up and walked out, rather than he was fired or he threw a temper tantrum. Who knows what the, <laughs> what the real story was. But uh, the impact was that... Steve was on the outs, and he has some interesting perspective on that. Now, remember that this quote is from before the, quote, second coming of Steve Jobs, before he wound up back at Apple. What can I say? I hired the wrong guy. So he had, had no real love in the end for Scully. He didn't think that uh, the sugar water guy was properly changing the world. <laughs> <laughs> and... 
for people who were there at the time, they saw this as a major loss. So Andy Hertzfeld was one of the engineers on the Macintosh project and uh, not 100% sure where he is today, but a couple of years ago, he was working at Google on the Google Plus team. Um, but he saw it as the defining moment in Apple's history. Apple never recovered from losing Steve. Steve was the heart and soul and driving force. would be quite a different place today. Uh, they lost their, uh, their soul. And in uh, something that I think captures that, uh, the loss of the soul and the heart, um, one of the next clips in this episode is uh, an internal Apple film that's kind of to, to drum up their sales team. And it's like some bizarre army metaphors uh, with like a, a strike team representing Apple sneaking into uh, someone's army office and like sneakily replacing the IBM PC with a Macintosh and the person being blown away at how great it is. Uh, it's, it's very bizarre. And it's, you know, with the, the term like this wouldn't have happened if Steve was there uh, is still thrown around a lot today. Uh, and I just have to think like, this is an example of that as well. Well, it's so interesting to think of this notion of the company losing their soul. And now with our additional 20 years of history looking back to see them regain it when uh, Steve came back to the company in 1997 and launched the iMac. And as we've gained a little bit more insight with the piece about Johnny Ive uh, released earlier this month that, you know, that Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive really worked in close collaboration, had this notion of culture and soul and brought it back to the company. And of course, now Steve Jobs is gone once again after he died. And I think that except for the perennial Apple is doomed naysayers, nobody's really going around today saying Apple has lost their soul even as they branch into new areas of products like the watch and the rumored car, no one's saying they've lost their soul. Maybe they're spreading themselves a little too thin. They want to make everything in the whole world insanely great, to quote from Steve, but they might just not have the resources to do so, even though they're one of the world's largest companies, or they have the resources, but they need to recognize how to allocate them. But the way that the company is behaving now under Tim Cook, if anything, people have been saying that it has even more of a soul. Um, I mean, that's what got us into this episode uh, was when the ATP guys were talking about Tim Cook's Apple, basically. And that's what got John Syracuse at it paraphrase the quote to Scully, you know, do you want to sell sugar phones for the rest of your life or do you want to change the world? And it's like Tim Cook's Apple, they've got the glowing rectangle market on lock. <laughs> you know, they, with with the Mac, with the iPad, with the iPhone, that is a thing of the past that's going to continue into the future. Just the same as Pepsi has not gone out of business today. People are still drinking Pepsi. People will still be using personal computing devices of various sizes, phone, tablet, uh, computer, watch, whatever, well into the future. But they're thinking in bigger and loftier goals, the more poetic, the more altruistic goals. Um, recently, we had news of 
them making some really significant philanthropic contributions in the U.S. and uh, reinstating their matching program for their employees who donate to charitable causes. And everyone sees this, I think, as a real positive that only Apple can do as one of the hugest companies in the world today. I mean, similarly to, you know, we've been down on the whole thing in Triumph of the Nerds, how Cringely's way of measuring success is whether you're a gazillionaire. You know, it's just dollars on the bottom line, dollars of net worth. That's what makes someone successful. Whereas in the time since this has happened, the people who have those billions of dollars are trying to turn it elsewhere. I mean, you know, what what has Bill Gates done in the past 10 years? Well, he's trying to solve the problem. He's trying to cure malaria. Yeah. Right? He's not writing new operating systems. That was a phase of his life that got him to a certain point. And you get the impression that he's still passionate about technology. But what do you do with the giant pile of money? It's not just a Scrooge McDuck vault that you go swimming in. It's something to then affect positive change in the world. The notion is that being productive, having computers, having useful tools is one form of productivity, but then there's another layer on top of that. And I think hopefully we'll see that continue with the tech giants in the future. But to get back to our episode uh, and and back to a place where Apple uh, has arguably lost its soul, they're, they're airing propaganda videos for their sales team. Uh, there's a throwaway fact here that the Mac was selling for about $2,000 and half of that was pure profit for Apple, you know, 50% margins. Well, they still love 50, 60% margins. I mean, that's where they make their money is in hardware margins still to this day. Ask anyone. <laughs> and then we get into this uh, this rivalry between Apple and Microsoft over the uh, graphical user interface. Microsoft is coming out with versions of Windows, uh, like Ed said, uh, there was still a GUI in Windows before Windows 95, um, but leading up to it, uh, since that's what Cringely led off this episode with, there was a big Apple lawsuit levied against Microsoft for copying the look and feel of uh, the Macintosh GUI. And interestingly here, they point out that it's not a patent claim, right? So it's not the patented look and feel. And we've seen all these stupid patent lawsuits <laughs> with software patents recently, you know, where like Amazon patents clicking, basically, um, you know, crazy stuff. And, you know, companies armed with portfolios of patents, some of them exclusively armed with portfolios of patents, not the tech giants, but the patent trolls. So that was not the case here. It was a copyright suit for copying the look and feel. We get some brief quotes from Steve Ballmer. We won't play them, but uh, he he kind of, with his trademark enthusiasm, alludes to the fact that uh, Windows was an iterative process that, uh, you know, borrowed ideas from places. Um, he mentions that he thinks it took him about seven versions to get things right. And he says, I will admit, quite frankly, that it's probably four years behind because we were splitting our time between doing Windows and still being tied up with making uh, operating systems for IBM. Um, and he, he says something about like the, the creative IQ was split at Microsoft. Uh, so obviously like they, they would have been looking for inspiration elsewhere, but Steve did the same thing with Xerox Park. And that's the criticism from the inside of the side that quote 
won, both in terms of that litigation and then the 90s PC market and mind share. So you can only imagine how Steve Jobs felt on the other side, the losing side, and he had absolutely nothing positive to say, really, about Microsoft in 1995. The only problem with Microsoft is they just have no taste. They have absolutely no taste. And, and, and what that means is, I don't mean that in a small way, I mean that in a big way, in the sense that they, they don't think of original ideas and they don't bring much culture into their product. Um, and, and you say, well, wh- why is that important? Well, you know, proportionally spaced fonts come from typesetting and beautiful books. That's where one gets the idea. If it weren't for the Mac, they would never have that in their products. Um, and so I, I guess I am saddened, not by Microsoft's success. I have no problem with their success. They've earned their success, for the most part. I have a problem with the fact that they just make really third-rate products. This was the bitter seed that was there uh, in Steve Jobs' mind at that point, and you know he he resented it, and he he wasn't just going to sit on that though. Obviously, we see that when he came back to Apple, this kind of sentiment is what fueled the serious drive, putting the soul back into the company and putting life back into their products. I don't know who this quote can be attributed to, uh, but it's another thing that's been frequently cited by Jobs in this second uh, coming. And it's that design isn't just how it looks, it's how it works. And I bet that that was like a big driving force in the, the second reign of Steve. It wasn't just that the iMac was bondy blue and translucent. It was that it was famously uh, not even a step three to getting the computer up and running and on the internet. Well, and how it works, important things about the iMac was what they could put in there was what they took out. You know, the the addition was USB and the elimination was the floppy drive, which seemed like complete heresy in 1997. But that's the way that Apple has driven their products ever since, all the way up to just a couple weeks ago, as we record this, the release of the new MacBook, not Air, um, which is extremely thin and eliminates all ports except the USB-C port for charging and headphones. And that's it. And it's this just continual drive. Just like we just said, one of the major things about the iMac was the i in iMac. It was the internet Macintosh. And that's how this three-part series, uh, Triumph of the Nerds, wraps up. We've gone through basically the the rise and the conflict of getting PCs out to people, PCs that uh, sat on your desk, accomplished things with killer apps, and had accessible operating systems. And maybe in a business or a school environment, they were networked on the local scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, it was sneaker net, saving things to floppies, that sort of thing. These were standalone devices. But it was clear to uh, everyone in the industry in the mid-90s that the next major leap, the next major area of competition and innovation was the internet. And even Bill Gates was on that same wavelength. And he says something about the internet that sounds like it hasn't changed really in 20 years. If somebody can predict what's going to happen three months from now, nine months from now, even today, uh, my hat's off to them. I think we've got a phenomena here 
that is moving so rapidly that nobody knows exactly where it will go. The the pace of change is just constant on, on the internet. I mean, we're in March as we record this, and so South by Southwest is wrapping up. And I think I've seen lots of recaps of like, who was the quote, big winner company at South by Southwest over the past several years, like past eight years. And the only one of them that's like still really kicking is Twitter. Yeah. But all these other companies that were startups, huge success, seriously venture backed and have sort of fizzled in various ways. So it's still just, you know, try to try to stay one day ahead of the other guy is the, the mode of competition in the internet computing world. Uh, so in addition to a focus on internet, uh, Microsoft had this uh, phase where they got uh, involved with the media. Uh, we all know MSNBC, Microsoft's uh, investment and collaboration with NBC. Uh, but what I didn't know is that uh, Microsoft and specifically Paul Allen made a huge investment uh, early on in DreamWorks. And we get a really interesting clip here of Steven Spielberg talking about their collaboration. And Brian, you noticed something that totally went past me, but it's glorious. They're on stage, obviously talking about this partnership. And Steve Spielberg is wearing a baseball hat with the Microsoft Bob logo on it. I mean, not really our topic because it's purely Microsoft product, but uh, Microsoft Bob was just being released at the time. And it's, you know, one of Microsoft's major historical flops. I think it's kind of like Microsoft's eWorld. It was supposed to be very like graphical and user-friendly and lots of, you know, all of your office computing stuff was supposed to be in this metaphor world of, of the home and it just never went anywhere. <laughs> also to me, I still don't quite understand the collaboration, but that is MSNBC and, you know, the name of that station now is just letters, right? Like, <laughs> right. It, it has nothing to do with either of those parent companies. I mean, I guess they still make money off of what the network does. But to me, it's, you know, today MSNBC is the Chris Matthews and Rachel Maddow network. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, they're, they're the liberal politics network. And, like, how did we get there from Microsoft other than just a pure infusion of money and walk away and uh, pay us back if you make some money with this stuff? Like, um, there's a weird history there that I don't fully understand. Speaking of things that I don't understand, we, <laughs> we, <laughs> we move from um, covering Microsoft and uh, how they were preparing for the future with Internet and Media to uh, cringely visiting Larry Ellison of Oracle at his Samurai Temple of a Home in Atherton, California. And uh, before we get into the things Larry Ellison says in his interview, um, I would just like to say that as a former resident of Palo Alto, which was basically two towns down from Atherton, uh, we all knew, as was also said in the show, that Atherton was a very wealthy community. It's where a lot of the executives, I think, would live when they were commuting to San Francisco or Palo Alto for their big businesses. Um, and Atherton has a reputation for like, like the the pinnacle of white people problems. Um, and so, <laughs> their police blotter is somewhat famous because uh, 
you don't get things like uh, breaking and entering or robbery or assault. The things that appear in the Atherton police blotter are things like people wondering if a hawk is okay or a, a, a mysterious hole appeared in the street. Somebody tipped over my recycling bin. Exactly. Like yes, it was probably the wind. It happens <laughs> all the time. These are the kind of problems that happen in Atherton where Larry Ellison lives. Uh, we'll put uh, a few links to collections of the Atherton police blotter in the show notes just so you can share in how ridiculous this is. So it's really interesting here that they go to Larry Ellison and who knows who they had access to or what sort of notion they had of the future of big players in the internet. But it's interesting that he's the totem of the future of internet-based computing. Obviously, Oracle was already a huge business because he could afford this absurd mansion with a koi pond that could more aptly be called a lake. Yeah. Um, but obviously, looking back, Oracle is not the huge player, at least not in the consumer space, for internet-based computing. I mean, they're still big, but now you think, okay, who is it? Google and Facebook and Amazon. These are the companies that really came up and dominated that area. And the question is legitimate. How much could the writers and producers of Time for the Nerds have predicted that at the time? I guess Ellison was someone who seemed more poised to take that into the future. And a lot of the things he says in this interview uh, are pretty spot on predictions. He talks about um, like, he doesn't like that computers are confined to desks. uh, And like Ed said, sneaker net, like you have to put your files on a disc and manually transport the disc to another computer. Um, He envisions a world where the, the PC as was known in 95 doesn't exist. You have uh, terminals to the internet. And um, like when I was uh, watching this, I immediately thought of smartphones. We're all carrying terminals to the internet and the wider world in our pockets now and not uh, tethered to our desks to access that information. And Steve Jobs said some similar things in early days of Apple. I remember there's one product demo. I don't know exactly the year that it was, um, or it might've been a next demo. I'll find it and put it in the show notes where he's talking about this world where the ideal is the dumb terminal. Your files are in the cloud. You sit down at any computer in the world. You say, I am me, and you authenticate, and all of your stuff is there. And that's still a little different vision than what we have where everyone has their own personal computer in their pocket with a smartphone. But it has led to the sorts of consumer-based products that Apple has created, like iCloud. And, you know, they're still in development with things like iCloud Drive. Um, But I think on OS X now, you can log in as a guest with an Apple ID. Oh. Like, if you sit down at some... If if you have the, the account settings right, like, if you sit down at a Yosemite Mac now and you log in as guest with an Apple ID, you basically log in and then, like, if you have stuff in iCloud Drive, it's all there. It's still sort of in, like I said, it's still sort of being fleshed out to something where you would really feel like you would actually sit down at someone else's computer and just make it your, use it like your own. Um, but it's all there. But what Ellison was going on about was really software distribution. And like you said, Brian, some totally spot on comments here. 
I mean, me going down to the store and buying Windows 95, got to get in my car, drive down to drive down to a store, buy a box, cardboard box full of bits, you know, you know, encoded on a piece of plastic, a CD-ROM, bring it home, read a manual, and install this thing. You must be kidding! You know, put the stuff on the net. It's bits. And of course, who was the player that actually did this? Apple. And again, in a, one of those like driving forward progress moves that people thought was crazy. Was it was with Lion, right? That they went to all digital, all internet-based distribution of the system software. And so, no, you don't need to go to a store. You don't need a plastic disc. You don't need to do any of that stuff to install or upgrade your system software. You just need a good internet connection. People thought that Apple was crazy at the time. There was the whole thing where, like, you could go to the Apple store and ask, like, beg them for a, a USB drive that actually had the installer on it. But we've clearly moved beyond that, and Apple is the one who's pushing this. They're still the only major player in the PC space, for lack of a better term, that is pushing out their software, system software, in this way. And look at Oracle. At least this may be biased for me, but the reputation that I think of with Oracle... Sure, they're still a huge company. They're huge in the enterprise, not in the consumer space. But you think about those enterprise situations with corporate IT departments, and they're, they're notorious for keeping people on outdated and sometimes you know prone to security flaw software because the method for updating is so slow, even if that's coming over the network rather than on physical media, the kind of products that Oracle wound up developing were the slow-moving products. And Apple, once Jobs came back, was able to get in this sort of fast-moving product distribution method that has really paid off, um, both in terms of their system software and, of course, the App Store. And with that, uh, Triumph of the Nerds comes to a close. We get a, the kind of cheesy, where are they now? recap for some of the major figures that were interviewed. And for Steve Jobs, this is not at Apple, right? Because it's 1995. He was not back yet. And one of the interesting things about how they talk about this is they say that he made his new money, quote, in a movie animation studio, some business that you may or may not have heard of, you know, just Pixar. <laughs> um, but of course, Probably, you know, Toy Story was released in 1995 and was a huge hit. Everybody knew that Pixar was a thing from the release of Toy Story. It didn't have to build slowly. But it probably wasn't released at the point where they were finalizing script on the documentary. So they didn't know. But the interesting thing is that there is absolutely no mention of Next. Which is odd because in the tech press of that time, there was some notion that Next was still a player. So I think I think I might have tweeted this out on our account, uh the Simple Beep account uh, a few weeks ago. There was a like a PC World cover where it had Microsoft, Apple, Sun, and Next. And it's like who's going to win the PC war? Mm -hmm. And you know, it's like spoiler alert, uh Microsoft won. But then you look at it fast forward wait, who actually is winning or at least really succeeding now? Well, it's Apple Plus Next. And my thought on that was, yeah, it's a real battle 
between any of those four companies individually, but team up any two of them, and of course they're going to crush. And that's exactly what happened with Apple. Nobody could have predicted it at this point in 1995, but it was really fortuitous for them that they got the Apple technology and the next technology back together. Uh, we also hear some things about uh, Steve Wozniak, for example. His his Where Are They Now is a teaching, I think they say 11 and 12-year-olds programming. But ultimately, we end with uh, Cringely in his red convertible, driving through Silicon Valley and uh, talking about the, the next big thing. Uh, as we mentioned, he would do another series for PBS about the internet, which uh, we're not going to cover. Um, but he he leaves us with another one of his cringely laws. And he estimates that uh, it takes 30 years for mass market adoption of a technology. He cites, I think, radio and television, even movies. And at the time where he's recording this, the PC is essentially 20. So he says, see you in 10 years to see, uh, you know, see where we are with the PC. And then in a back to the future ripoff, his, uh, his car zooms into nothingness and leaves behind flaming tire treads. Yeah. But, I don't think that this law, many of Cringely's laws have not really held up. So his third law with the, you need a killer app. I think more and more people talk about the fact that you don't need a killer app. Of course, the iPhone launched without a killer app um, because it was all first party software, no ability for third parties to develop. But what grew up eventually was the app store ecosystem. So that has maybe evolved. You, one app is never going to carry a platform. It's all about the distributed ecosystem that coalesces around that platform, whether it's the dominant force. And also, I don't think that that 30 years time is going to, you know, basically a generation, I don't think that that's going to carry forward into the future. Because obviously, the smart the smartphone revolution happened basically since the iPhone. Maybe if you want to be sort of generous and include some other early players, let's say the past 10 years. And would you, would you dare to go out on the street and say that smartphones have not achieved like mass buy-in in the hands of the populace? You'd be crazy. <laughs> Everyone is using their smartphones for everything. So that only took 10 years. It seems that this time to adoption is decreasing. Of course, there will be a lower bound. It's not like everyone in the world is going to become a day one early adopter 20 years from now. But we've seen, I'd say the PC really did take hold in those 20 years. You know, 95, let's say it's taken hold. And then, you know, another 10 years, and then we got the smartphone revolution. And it's 100% taken hold today. So we'll see what the next thing is. You know, maybe it's wearable technology. We don't know. But whatever the next big thing is, it's probably only going to take five years or two years for it to reach, you know, serious buy-in from people. So it's interesting to get that broad perspective on how people are handling their computing devices and how they are affecting the mass market. All right. That's, uh, that's the end of Triumph of the Nerds and the end of this our three-part series uh watching and recapping it we hope you've enjoyed coming along for the ride if you haven't been watching the episodes as you go along from now my personal recommendation is cut straight to the good stuff come to episode three um because it's full of steve jobs quotes 
Um, also, I haven't watched it yet, but the extended Steve Jobs interview may also be worth a look. 70 minutes of back and forth with Cringely and Jobs. Uh, all of these cutting quotes are in there and some some extra stuff that was left on the editing room floor. So that may also be a good use of your time. As far as our podcast goes, we're going to head back to our regular schedule starting next episode. So we'll be back in two weeks and every two weeks after that, uh, unless things change. So until then, you can always go and check out our show notes on our website at simplebeep.com slash episodes or contact us at simplebeep.com slash contact. You can also find us on Twitter at simple underscore beep. If you'd like to reach out to us personally on Twitter, I am at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm E. Cormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for watching along with us, nerds. <laughs>